um, hello. Today I am joined by uh, Senia Kastananka, who is an assistant professor at Mass General. Um, Senia, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes, thank you so much for having me here, Hardeep. So my name is Senia Kostinenka, that's Senia K is silent, and I'm an assistant professor here at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I run a research laboratory that specializes in studies of Alzheimer's disease. We use uh, leading-edge methodologies, including optogenetics and multifoton microscopy, as well as wide-field imaging with voltage sensors to study circuit disruptions in mouse models. We also partner with industry leaders on um, development of therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Okay, and from what I've read is like you're looking at sleep disturbances, correct? That's right. In, uh, in Alzheimer's and you have a mouse model. Yes, exactly. So in addition to uh, memory disruptions, Alzheimer's patients, especially in early stages of their disease progression, exhibit sleep disturbances. So it's a very common occurrence where they have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. And we discovered a disruption in a brain rhythm called slow oscillations that are important for memory consolidation during sleep. So using optogenetics and a variety of other technologies, we established a causal role between sleep disruptions and Alzheimer's progression. So it's not simply an epiphenomenon of the disease, but these sleep disturbances and disruptions in underlying brain rhythms that are associated with sleep are actually contributing to Alzheimer's progression. So does that have anything to do with, you know, that sundowning that's seen in like dementia patients? Is it exactly exactly? Yes, you got it. You got it. That's exactly it. So one of the major concerns that the caregivers um, voice about taking care of Alzheimer's patients is the, you know, is the issues with sundowning. So, yeah, it's um, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a big problem. And we're hoping to shed more light um, on it, especially the some of the mechanisms underlying uh, these issues in mouse models. And I would imagine this kind of has implications on sleep in, in general, you know, informing about our sleep patterns and circadian rhythms and what's best and, you know, what is it when we can't sleep or we go through periods of insomnia, you know, what kind of information you get from this and how it relates to sort of quote unquote normal healthy people. So as you know, sleep is very important. And uh, for those of you in the audience that have a small child, for instance, that's going through sleep training, um, we, we really start to value sleep. We realize that sleep is very important. It's important for restorative function, right? So for us to just function normally and to be alert. And also sleep is important for memory consolidation. So that's something that happens during deep non-REM sleep. So as soon as we fall asleep, we hit very very shortly after we hit this deep non-REM sleep. And during that period, we consolidate all of the important memories that we need to remember for future use, for instance. So if there was a big event that happened the day prior, uh, we will be remembering that event. And that is due to memory consolidation. So as you can imagine, if Alzheimer's patients have difficulty sleeping and they're not uh, spending as much time in that deep non-REM sleep, they will have difficulties consolidating memories. So it's it's not unusual for, for Alzheimer's patients, not to remember what happened the day prior, and that is because of the sleep issues that they're having. 
how do you test it in your mouse models? How how do these tiny little mice, how do you figure out what, what their <laughs> sleep cycles are? How do you work it out? We are very fortunate in the field of Alzheimer's disease. We have a variety of different mouse models. So we have these transgenic mouse lines where we have our overexpression of human mutations in the protein, in the, in the genes that code for the proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease in humans in sporadic forms of Alzheimer's disease. So we use these transgenic mouse models and the mouse model that we used was a mouse model of amyloid doses who deposit amyloid plaques. And these are the protein aggregates that are associated with early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So we use these mouse models and we saw disruptions of the, uh, the sleep-dependent brain rhythms, slow oscillation specifically. And it was really interesting to see parallels in the human literature. So as we were just making these discoveries, we came across a rich body of literature uh, where Alzheimer's patients in early stages of the disease progression, early Alzheimer's disease, or even during mild cognitive impairment, or health, even healthy individuals that already have amyloid deposits in their brains, those individual ex individuals exhibit similar disruptions in this brain rhythm, slow oscillations. So it was really remarkable to see how well our mouse models of Alzheimer's disease recapitulate the disruptions, the uh, brain rhythm disruptions that were seen in um, in Alzheimer's patients. So you have, you're not doing all this by yourself, I imagine. You're not just sitting at the bench with all these like tiny mice doing all these experiments. So you have a lab, correct? How big is your lab? And the transition from being an instructor, you know, from being postdoc to instructor and then now instructor, assistant professor, you know, now you're no longer on the bench doing your own experiments now you 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 have a com you're commanding a team of people how how have you found that you know in in terms of this research as well you know pushing it forward that's right that's right so actually my career path has been kind of unusual i joined massachusetts general hospital as a postdoctoral fellow, I trained in the laboratory of Brian Baskey and Brett Hyman here at, uh, at Mass General, and I was promoted to instructor, and then I was promoted to assistant professor within the same institution, which is kind of unusual in, in academic field. So now I run a research laboratory. We are a team of nine, and I'm really fortunate to have recruited really brilliant individuals from all over the world. Um, so we are we have postdoctoral fellows, we have research technicians, we have a graduate student that is part of the team. And it's it's been really remarkable to, you know, to to watch these individuals grow, right? It's been quite an adjustment to my thinking, to the mindset when I transitioned from postdoc being a postdoctoral fellow, where I did a lot of work on my own at the bench, to running a research team where I'm more or less uh, behind the lines and uh, and leading and mentoring these these bright individuals. So you said you've hired this great team of people. So what do you look for, you know, to get these great people to join your lab? What, what are you looking for when you're interviewing them or talking with them, looking at their CVs, that kind of thing? You know, what, what's the spark that, that you're like, okay, I, I know I want, I want this person in, in my lab. 
Right. So um, the field of Alzheimer's disease has been mired by a great number of failures when it comes to therapeutic development. So we had a couple of FDA approvals just relatively recently for anti-amyloid therapies that are thought to uh, be disease modifying. So we are really in the beginning stages of you know, getting to the therapeutic development for Alzheimer's disease. So there is a great pent-up need. There are a lot of individuals with Alzheimer's disease that have been waiting for a cure for a very long time. So my goal, the the goal of my lab is to um, help make that change, right? We have to work together. We have to work with academics in multidisciplinary teams, and we have to partner with the industry who can actually bring the drugs to the market so that Alzheimer's individuals could benefit from those. So where I see um, our role is to be able to contribute to that effort. And for that, we need a great team, as you mentioned. So what do I look in uh, in my trainees. I look for motivation, um, motivation to work uh, towards that cure for Alzheimer's disease. They have to be really excited to be, you know, to be in this field. It's okay if they're new, but the motivation have to be has to be there. And as you know, here in the Boston area, we have a variety of training resources. So not only do we develop these individuals in terms of their technical expertise, all of the methodologies that they need to learn and they need to develop their expertise in Alzheimer's disease, but also they have to develop professionally, right? So now we're starting to realize that in order to make that transition from a postdoctoral fellow to assistant professor who's able to run their research lab and manage their research laboratory, there are a lot of different skills that are necessary. And those include mentoring. Mentoring is very important. Those include uh, grant writing. It's really imperative to be able to bring funding into the laboratory. So we're able to work on the studies that we really want to, to work on. And it's really important to be able to present your research. That is really key. And we work with my team on development of those skills. I realize that it's really important for them to develop those skills as part of their doctoral training with me. So it's really about motivation. How excited are they to be in the lab? How excited are they to show up for work every day? That's what you're looking for, that kind of spark in people. That's one thing that when you were speaking Do you take kind of like that industry project management view on on how your lab works? So, you know, I um, I realize that here at Mass General, we are in the business of training. Right. So we are a training facility where we train postdoctoral fellows so they're able to get the skills, the techniques, the know-how necessary to make the transition to their next step. So I don't treat them as my employees. I uh, treat them as my mentees. Okay. And so how have you found that in terms of being the mentor and doing the mentoring? I mean, what what do you like about it or what do you don't like about it as well, you know? And what kind of advice would you give to to people who are sort of just starting out or what would you like people to know now that you didn't know before? So I 
personally really enjoy mentoring. I enjoy interacting with my trainees as well as in other um, trainees within the Massachusetts General Hospital in general. Um, and even at the conferences, I get approached all the time and being asked for advice. And um, I readily share that advice. It's um, It's been quite a learning curve for me um, how to become a better mentee because obviously I've been mentored through all the stages of my career. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that as well. But also I had to learn how to become a good mentor. And that's that's important as well. So in terms of mentees, if you are in early stages of your career, it's really important to find individuals that will give you the right advice for the right step you're, you're planning to take, for instance. So I would divide mentoring into three parts. There are three types of mentors, and those are mentors, the bona fide mentors, uh, sponsors, and coaches. And I would recommend having multiple of each. So what do mentors do? So mentors usually share their experience. Look, this is how I did this. This, These are the steps I've taken. And um, that's what got me where I am today. So they basically share their experiences in the hopes that uh, those experiences would be helpful for their mentees. A sponsor is somebody who works in, in the back, right? Somebody who it would advocate on your behalf behind closed doors. So for instance... If you are, let's say, up for promotion, right? So a sponsor would be somebody who will say, oh, uh, she or he is a great candidate for promotion, for instance. A sponsor is also, um, that individual could be your postdoctoral men uh, mentor, right? Because that's the individual that could be paying your salary, could be paying for the um, materials and supplies that you use in your research project and so on. So that would be sponsor, somebody who is supporting you um, either financially or, or, or not. And then there's a coach, right? So coach is somebody who is asking um, really challenging questions, right? Somebody who is tailoring their adv advice based on your need. So um, I think that it's really important to seek out mentors, um, sponsors, and coaches, especially during early stages of the career, uh, because it's really important. You know, there's such a thing as making the right moves to get to the finish line. And one of the biggest challenges that early stage investigators make is really making that transition from being a postdoctoral fellow to an assistant professor to running their research laboratory. And I think especially at that junction, it's really critical to get the right advice to, you know, to increase the success of making that transition. So that's from the mentor, men, uh, mentee standpoint. <laughs> so now you're you're at this assistant professor level. So you're now the, like the manager, right, of this lab. And have you had any kind of formal management training or is it sort of learning as you go and, you know, making mistakes? And do you wish you could have some formal management training? Do you think that would be beneficial? Or do you think that all people who get, you know, promoted from instructor to assistant professor should have it? Um, because, you know, it's like notorious that in academia, there are, you know, it's sort of rife with um, bad managers. They're great ac academics. They're great, brilliant scientists, but they're poor managers. 
Ardeep, that's a fantastic question and it's a great point. So I, um, as I mentioned, I had to adjust my mindset, right, from working at the bench and being focused on my work and being kind of, you know, really selfish to make sure that my things work out without really, you know, thinking about, you know, others, because there was no need for that, right? I was working more or less on my own, on, a, on my own project and leading my own project. So now I have to step back and I have to make sure that not I succeed, but my team succeeds because if they're doing well, we're all doing well. We are, we are a team. And I mean, I have to say, unfortunately, there wasn't much training that was available. Uh, there was some training, you know, there was some training available, I believe through Harvard Catalyst, uh, which is a fantastic website for those of you who are within the Harvard community. And even for those who are not, I highly recommend checking out the courses that are available on Harvard Catalyst. Um, they did have a professional development workshop. I believe it was a two-day workshop, and that was remarkable. It was really, really good, and I really enjoyed I learned a lot from it. But I have to say, it's not um, it's not a lot of resources. There's um, our uh, institution also has Massachusetts General Hospital has Center for Faculty Development. They have they used to have workshops, and you're able to meet with with mentors there, and they will provide you with advice and things like that. So individual institutions could have resources, and whatever those um, resources are, I highly recommend taking advantage of those. Because it's, you know, we are not trained. It's not part of a graduate student uh, uh, school curriculum or postdoctoral curriculum to learn how to run a research lab. And there are a lot of different components uh, to it um, besides the, you know, leading a research project. So do you think that you think even like even now, let's say that you could benefit or you would like to or, you you know, if if the possibility existed for you to get management training I you know formal let's say it's a leadership I would let's say call it leadership training would you take it would that be something that would interest you Absolutely. I think we need more of these types of opportunities, especially for junior stage investigators to learn how to do it right from, from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think that would really benefit research leaders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, some kind of course, you know, leadership for scientists or something would, would probably be really, you know, well subscribed, I would think, you know. I agree. I absolutely agree with you, Kartik. And so as a mentor, what what do you find hard? Oh wow, that's a fantastic question. Um, I mean, when when we first start out, everything is hard. <laughs> it seems like because everything comes in at once, right? So you're given some research space. Uh, you have some ideas to test. And then they say, go <laughs> and good luck. And that usually comes with a 10-year clock. We don't have tenure here at Massachusetts General Hospital, but you know, at other institutions, there is a time within which you have to accomplish these goals. So right away, you have to start looking for funding. You have to apply for funding. You have to start recruiting individuals to your group. Um, you have to start traveling quite a bit to increase visibility of your work. You have to network within your institution. If you are new to that institution, if you were newly recruited uh, to that academic institution, then you have to start networking within your department, within your institution, within uh, 
administrators, with administrators in general, just to figuring out how to run things. Or if you're promoted from within, you have to extend your reach right within your institution to see if there are potential collaborators within your institution and also beyond. Um, it's really important to get involved in grant review. So I would highly recommend um, reviewing grants and reviewing papers and being open to those types of opportunities because those will not only help you learn um, about grant writing in general and, uh, you know, uh, see what's going on in your field. But it will also come with networking opportunities when you're interacting with other individuals. And then once, you know, uh, you have your research lab, once you have some funding and you're getting going, you know, there are things like COVID, COVID sets in and you have to deal with that. And, you know, your mentees start, you know, having children or they're, you know, they're getting married or they need to visit their family if their family is not in the United States. So it, it's a lot that comes all at once. And you start realizing, you know, that you're responsible for a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, I think it's um, it's really rewarding because you see the fruits of your labor, right? You see that graduate student getting their PhD, you know, they're, they're giving their defense and getting their PhD. You see that postdoctoral fellow making the transition to their next career state. You see, you know, a technician who's been wanting to get into graduate school or medical school are finally getting to do that. So it's it's really, really remarkable to to witness that and be a part of that. One thing that you had mentioned is that you work with, you know, a sort of multidisciplinary area. And one of the things with those is like, you have to know how to work with the different types of people, the different backgrounds, sort of almost like the different languages that they speak. How do you deal with that? And also, how would you, how do you help your mentees deal with that? you know, sort of being able to work with, let's say, the imaging side of things or the genetic side of things, you know, all of that data analysis versus, you know, somebody who's like purely being at the bench. Right. So as I mentioned, you know, Alzheimer's disease is a big problem, right? And it's not because we're just starting <laughs> to work on it. You know, as a field, we've spend a lot of time and effort and energy um, on Alzheimer's problem. And it's still more or less unsolved. And, you know, we're starting to realize, especially uh, here at Mass General, that we need expertise from multiple different, you know, walks of life, right? We need different experts to come together and think about this problem. So I am very fortunate to be part of the department here in the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital, where on daily basis, I get to interact with neurologists who see Alzheimer's patients, right? Who interact with those patients and talk to those patients. Um, I get to work with neuroscientists that think very differently. They don't necessarily have the patient, you know, emphasis in mind. They think more about, you know, neural circuits or how, you know, all the bits of neuroscience can be put together and apply to the um, Alzheimer's problem. I get to work with molecular biologists who think, you know, who think differently, computational neuroscientists. So it's really is remarkable to be part of, of this environment here at MGH. And um, one thing that I think um, is the key 
to to all of us working together is finding a common language, right? So we have to communicate, even though we're coming from different training backgrounds, different experiences. I think once we come together and we find that common language where we're able to, to talk and discuss and come together, I think that's when, you know, beautiful things happen and really seminal discoveries take place. So I think it's really key to, to be able to communicate with each other. Yeah, it's that sort of diversity thing, you know, it's sort of not always the color of one's skin, it's your different experiences that really um, bring these, like you said, these new discoveries to light when you have different people looking at the same problem from different points of view. It, it um, makes a big difference in terms of moving these kind of big problems forward. So as you were talking about the multidisciplinary side of things and, and working with all these different types of people, you know, what brought up a question for me was like in terms of networking, you know, because that's networking as well. And, and one of the things with the JCSW that is huge is networking with people who you would never normally have spoken to before. So I wonder if you want to talk about networking for you and also how you find networking you know, if if you find it difficult, if you find it easy, you know, what kind of advice would you give to someone who didn't like networking or, or you know, that, that kind of thing? Yes. So I've been a part of JCSW for, for a while now, and it's, it's really remarkable um, what they have done. They really brought us together. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of women at all different levels of training from all different backgrounds. And we all come together and we share our experiences and, you know, we have speakers that we interact with. It's really a remarkable, remarkable group of women. And I'm really excited to be a part of that group. And networking comes into it, right? Because we get to meet uh, these amazing, exceptional women from different walks of life. So I personally, at this point, genuinely enjoy networking. I genuinely enjoy meeting new people and learning about their backgrounds, their experiences, whatever they have to say. Um, I really enjoy those interactions. It hasn't always been the case. When I was um, an undergraduate or even a graduate student, I was this introvert who was really happy in the dark room, taking images of my data and not really talking to anybody. So I really relate for those introverts that are a little weary of going up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is. So I think, um, you know, over the course of my uh, multitude of my trainings, I learned that networking is really key to, you know, to, to, to being promoted, to being successful at, at whatever it is you're being, you know, you're trying to accomplish. I think it's really important to be able to talk to the right people. So the advice I would give is if you're just, um, you know, if you're in early stages of your career and you're, if you're a little bit weary about networking, try to put yourself in situations where you would feel comfortable approaching an individual, right? So um, let's say you want to meet somebody, you know, who, um, let's say is an assistant professor somewhere at another institution from yours. 
So where would that individual be open to having, you know, a pleasant, polite conversation with you where you would feel comfortable? And some of those options could be at scientific conferences, right? So when we go to a scientific conference, we turn on this extrovert mindset and we put the introvert kind of on the back burner and uh, we are there to meet others. We expect other people to be there who we, you know, might not necessarily know or want to meet. So it just provides, um, you know, an environment and opportunity for those connections to be made. So I think it's really important, you know, if you're just starting out to not be shy and to put yourself in these situations, you know, by attending conferences. Also, if there, let's say there is a seminar speaker in your department and you're really interested in meeting them, um, you know, after their seminar is over, go go up to them and introduce yourself and say, oh, what a wonderful seminar. I really, you know, I know a lot about your work. I really, you know, enjoyed listening to your talk. And that already, you know, breaks the ice and starts that initial conversation. And then once you become better at networking, I would recommend reaching out to others through um, something called informational interview. So for instance, if this is an individual that you're not really, you don't really have a strong connection with yet. And if you know, if you are uh, would like to ask them something or willing to learn from them, you know, just putting together a quick email with a subject informational interview where you would ask them for a few minutes of their valuable time so that you could ask a few questions about their career, about their lab, about whatever it is that interests you. They would be more um, amenable to meeting with you, you know, via phone, Zoom, or perhaps even in person. So they're um, different ways that you could approach, you know, networking. Yeah, it, it, it isn't always what people say, you know, working the room. It's, it's sort of just going up to one person and talking to them. Exactly. Yes. I, you know, I find that if I, uh, the connections are made, uh, you know, genu when genuine connections are made, when uh, you're actually learning about the other individuals, right? When you're asking them questions that they are, you know, open to answering, and that creates a connection that could then be lasting, right? Because ultimately, you don't want to just, you know, meet everybody in the room, you want to make sure that you meet some individuals that will, um, you know, and establish those connections that will last into the future yeah it's about who you want to connect with with authentically you know genuinely who 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 you like as a person is is how i look at it you know exactly. you know am i gonna like this person i seem to like this person so you know let me you know just keep keep on saying hello when we when we meet and ask about themselves or just small things you know add up to, to making a, a great connection is, is right. what I found. Yeah, um, yeah, Ardeepan, you know, I, I'm always asked uh, from, you know, graduate students or technicians or even postdoctoral fellows, but why would that, you know, renowned individual want to talk to me? Who am I to talk to them? And, you know, like, and that always baffles me because, you know, we as scientists, we 
genuinely uh, enjoy interacting with other with other scientists, regardless, you know, of where they are, whether they're junior, whether they're senior. We we just generally enjoy talking about science and getting to know each other. Um, so yeah, so I think you know it's it's not an excuse. It's really important to come out of that shell and try to make those connections. So one of the things that when we had the meeting the with. Uh, the former director of the NSF, uh, France Cordova. One of the things that she said was like, she was asked, like, how did you get those jobs, you know? And she's like, I just went up to people and, and asked them or talked to them. I mean, and I was like, that right there is the how to do it. She's like, she wasn't afraid to go and talk to people. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's really important to be a go getter. Right. And have that mindset that um, things won't necessarily come to me. If there's something I want, um, I have to go and get it. I have to make that initial connection. And you never know, maybe that individual was looking for, for an applicant that is very similar to what you are on, you know, on, on the CV to fill that job. So they might be waiting for you to come to them, but yet, yet if you don't make that initial connection, then you'd never get the job. So yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, um, you know, it, it's really important to reach out to people and, you know, introduce yourself and, and make that initial connection that could lead to that interview, perhaps a job or whatever it is you're looking for. Yeah. The other thing that I find is that, you know, when you Talking to different people, even if it's just different people in your department who you not, you know, they're from a different lab group. But once you get talking to them, I always find that when you find out what their background is, what their knowledge base is, and then when you come across a problem and you're like, oh, okay, I think that so and so, you know, they have, they have expertise in this. Let me just walk down the hall and ask them. I mean, it, it's such a huge thing to be able to do that to problem solve. Yeah, exactly. And you know, um, what I like to do whenever I pass people in the hallway, I, I, I do a lot of small talk. And I really enjoy that. You know, how are you? How are the kids? What are you working on? What's going on? What's on your mind? And you you get to know a lot of things. So let's say if you're faced with a certain problem, a couple of days later, you know exactly who to ask to get a quick response, right? And that individual might not be your best friend, but they just know. <laughs> they know an answer that you're looking for. So I think, you know, network can be on a really deep level, right? Where, you know, you're asking, oh, what did you do, your career, your advice, all these different things. But it can be something really similar. Let's say I'm looking for a certain antibody um, that I want to use. And this one individual is saying, oh, I'm staying, I'm staying with this antibody. And you just go over, can I, can I borrow a little bit, a couple of microliters? So it's, it's as simple as that, you know, um, it's really important to, you know, to make that eye contact, you know, talk to the people and um, it solves a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, making friends with the, the, you know, the group down the hall, you know, if you've run out of dry ice and you've got to, exactly. you know, you're like, oh, I'll just go ask my friend down the hall. Maybe they got a little bit of dry ice that I can use, you know, because we've run out. It's, it's huge. It's like the little, little things make such a huge difference. Oh yeah. And then they come over and they ask you for things, which is great. That's exactly how it works, right? It's back and forth. Um, and that's another thing about networking, right? It's, you know, 
you see what you uh, want to get out of that relationship, right? It's a take, but it's also a give, right? I think it's really important to give and um, whatever it is, right? Um, you know, different individuals might need different things, but when you're there at the right moment and you provide them with that something that they need, they will remember, right? They will remember. So then next time when you're approaching them, they're like, oh, sure, of course, I will do this for you. Right. So we're, we're getting up to time. And so there's two questions that I've been asking people. One is, what's one professional skill that you would like to work on or are working on? And what's one personal skill that you would like to work on or are working on? Right. So professional skill, I would really uh, like to, we were talking about it, I would really like to get better at managing people, at training people. As I mentioned, I'm, you know, I'm relatively new at this and it's been a great journey, a great ride, and I'm really enjoying this, but I really want to get better, right? So that's, you know, that's a professional uh, skill, something that I'm working on. Um, Personal skill, I mean, (laughs) I think just, keeping it together, right? Because, you know, we career women, we have a lot that is required of us, right? We have a lot of requests at work. We have a lot of requests at home. And for those of us who have children, who are married, that manage a household, it's a lot, right? So just being able to to manage it all, and stay sane. That really is the key. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I personally feel very fortunate because I have it all. And now the job is to make sure that um, it's all well balanced. So that's a per- personal struggle for me. <laughs> what, part, what parts of that do you find difficult? Is it because work pulls you more or home pulls you more? So I have a five-year-old daughter And, you know, shortly after she was born, I thought, oh, you know, the job, the career, the lab, I got that. That's going well. This is this is fine. It's the the child part, the raising the child part, because, you know, um, that was the the first child I had. This is the only daughter I have. And um, I was very new to this. I was really taken back at how much effort is required and essentially, you know, my husband and I, we became responsible for this little individual. It was our job to keep her alive, to keep her well, to keep her educated. And it was a lot. So I was really struggling with with the child part. Um, Now that she grew up a little bit, I think it's become more manageable, (laughs) which is which is really great. But initially, the first year or so, um, she was really dependent on us and my husband and I. And that was the time when I had to travel to a lot of conferences. My lab was just starting out. I had to do a lot of grant review, a lot of writing grants, networking, um, giving talks, traveling. It was just a lot. So I think you know, managing all of those different things, you know, can be really challenging for somebody with a small child and who's just starting out in their career. So would you ever have considered staying home and putting your career on hold? Right. So that's, you know, that's another um, question I kind of had because I was always driven. Um, I knew I wanted to be a scientist from very early age. My mom is a science 
teacher. So I was I always gravitated towards science, towards neuroscience. And that was the only thing I ever wanted to do. So then um, when we got married and we were thinking about having children, at that point, I thought, you know, how come um, I just didn't realize what it takes to raise a child? And I thought, you know, how come that we see a lot of women that, you know, have PhDs that highly successful, then go have children and quit science or, you know, quit doing research um, at the bench or decide that pursuing an academic career running their own research lab is not for them, right? So I think until you know, you have a child, if you're a woman, you don't realize how much juggling and how much effort is involved in raising, you know, a child and managing all of those other demands when, that come with a career. Yeah, it's, you know, that's the reason why when you, the, the drop off in female or women associate and professors and full professors that you see that drop off in the in the percentage you know going from an instructor to assistant professor let's say it's like 50 50 but as you go up the ladder to associate and full the the number of the percentage of women goes down dramatically right and i think you know now there's a great effort um from you know chairs from deans of departments to promote women to provide women with the right opportunities so they're able to bridge that gap right you know which is remarkable to see women are getting more support from the departments um women are provided with you know with additional opportunities so for instance you know uh, grants just for women where only women can compete and and things like that so there are a lot of opportunities for women out there that are um, they're helping them and I think you know it goes back to what we talked about Hardeep I think it's um we need to get the right advice at the right time right so if you are a woman who is a postdoctoral fellow about to make that transition to you know running an independent lab and you do you are married and you're having children or about to have children thinking about having children it is possible to have it all it is possible to do this you just need a plan you need the right advice to do the right things at the right time to be able to bridge that gap so i you know i don't want to discourage women i think that um more than ever women should be encouraged now because there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of people that are thinking and putting that those thoughts into action of how to help women bridge that gap okay great is there anything else that you'd like to say, you know, as we wrap up, you know, thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been great. Really, really. I find it so interesting doing these, how, how different each conversation is. So yeah, this is, this has been really wonderful for me. Thank you so much for having me, Hardeep. I am, I am really happy to participate in this and I hope that your listeners will get something out of this that um, will be really helpful and useful to them. And um, for those of you who have follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to me. Um, again, it's Senia Kastaninka and I'm at Massachusetts General Hospital. Okay, great, great, great. And you have a website? Do you have a lab website? Yes, I have a lab website, Kastaninka Lab. I'm also on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook so feel free to reach out to me okay great thank you so much thanks